Welcome to the Recappery, the History Chicks Media Recap Emporium. Today, we begin our coverage, so exciting, of the masterpiece adaptation of Louisa May Alcott's classic, Little Women. To get some background on things we'll be saying throughout this show about, hey, doesn't that sound like Louisa May Alcott's life? If you have time and inclination, what I would do is go hit our other podcast, The History Chicks, where we covered Louisa May Alcott. The book Little Women is amazingly biographical, um, idealized biographical. <laughs> this movie peeled back a little bit of the frosting of the book to expose a little bit more of the source material. So Marmee perhaps is not your Susan Sarandon angelic person full of calmness and serenity from the most famous 1994 movie adaptation that we will probably refer to quite a bit during this episode, but more like Louisa May Alcott's real mother, Abba. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I thought that was one of the great things about this particular adaptation, other than the other ones that have been out there, is that there was realness to it that I hadn't seen before. All right. Well, let us just jump right in. So the first scene opens to a whole bunch of close-up shots, and there's a lot of giggling and undressing and shushing. And at first, I was like, what is even happening? <laughs> As was I. It's like sepia vision. I mean, it's beautiful right from the first second of this thing. But there's unlacing of corsets and bare feet and dropping of petticoats. And I'm thinking, what kind of adaptation is this? Am I watching the right thing? So one thing I thought was good, though, um, so you don't know who anyone is. Amy's a little easier to tell. She's the only blonde. A person comes in with big, giant scissors, and someone complains that they're the kitchen shears. So I'm guessing the complainer is Meg, because the kitchen shears have been cutting chicken legs off and all manner of disgusting things. And so you don't want to bring those gross things into the bedroom. So then I could assume the holder of the kitchen scissors is probably not Beth, but is in fact Joe. Joe with the wild eyes. Again, I'm not sure what's going to happen in this particular adaptation in this first scene because she comes in and she's wielding the largest pair of scissors I have ever seen in my life. And she kind of looks like Jack Nicholson in The Shining. She's got that same <laughs> eye look and she's by a door and I'm kind of creeped out at this point. And she comes at her sister, Amy, with these scissors. Amy's first, she says. Amy says, I must make this sacrament, which she means sacrifice. This is, as far as I can tell, the only reference in this episode to Amy's famous malapropism. <laughs> I, I don't think they even included it anywhere else. So I'm sad about that. I miss the labeling Papa like a pickle bottle comment. I'm missing a lot of stuff. Okay, so they're cutting locks of hair after all this buildup. That's all they're doing. That's all they're doing. And Amy says, don't take more than a half an inch. And I'm thinking Joe grabs a little bit more than a half an inch. I'm saying two, two and a half inches, maybe. So then we hear a clap of thunder. Mr. March is at war. He is in a dark tent and there's a man, which we know is Mr. March. He's sitting at a table writing a letter by a lamp when a young Union soldier comes in and he asks for Pastor March. So now we know who he is for sure. And he gives the letter to the man and he's assured that it's going to go out in the train tonight to get to wherever it's going. There is a wounded man, a soldier, lying on a cot in the same tent. And he says, cold. Obviously, he's in 
bad shape. Mr. March does not even hesitate to give his own coat. He does not have a shade of irritation or doubt or dang it on his face. He is a transcendentalist. If you can help your fellow man, that is your duty without hesitation. And so there you go. He gives his own coat to the wounded man on the cot and goes back to his desk. And that's where we see all the locks of hair. These Victorians were obsessed with hair as mementos. They are all labeled with little tags. It's a pretty picture there on his desk. There is a voiceover saying, Merry Christmas, Father, with our fondest love, Meg, Joe, Beth, and Amy. And there is a Concord postmark on the letter, on the envelope, although it looks like September 25th for some reason. Did you catch that? Uh, I did not. This whole show is filmed in Ireland in August. They have turned summertime Ireland into winter Massachusetts. They did a lovely job. It's not even cold out. Surprising. You should reevaluate your statement. It's summer in Ireland. And (laughs) what that means to you is it is still probably not that hot. No, no, but it's still August. Everything is green. It's not wintertime New England when everything should be naked. Originally, this is a BBC production and PBS has taken it over. They helped fund it originally in England. They saw it at Christmas time, which would have been lovely, I think, to see this at Christmas time. Little cozy time. Okay, so now we move to the credit sequence. It was written by a woman named Heidi Thomas, who is probably most famous for her series called The Midwife. Mm -hmm. And she's also written for Upstairs, Downstairs. So this is like her genre you know, historical dramas. With lots of young women. With lots of young women, yes. Speaking of dealing with young women, the director, Vanessa Caswell, is probably most famous for her work on the movie 13. It is produced by Susie Liggett, who had produced several episodes of Doctor Who, as well as the Sarah Jane Adventures, which is a Doctor Who spinoff series, or it was. Perfect for this. So there is a quick shot of Joe chopping wood. And then the curtain, so to speak, opens. We open to the same scene as the opening of the book. Christmas won't be Christmas without any presents, says Joe. But I have to tell you, there is a giant element missing for me. I miss the whole Marmy present thing. No gifts for Marmy. I'm having a very sad face. That was one of my favorite parts of that opening scenario in the book, the girls are going to spend money on themselves and then realize, wait, we're being super selfish. We should all buy presents for Marmy and hide them. And it was so cute. There's a lot of that in this show where the original intent is gone because they skipped it for, you know, narrative economy. So yes, I missed that part too, because it doesn't say that they're making any sacrifices for Christmas. It's just like, we all agreed, we're fine, as long as we have Marmy and Father and each other. So a lot happens here. Exposition, mostly. They've crammed a lot in. Joe has a messed up dress. She has sticky gloves. Joe is antisocial, but lovable. She wishes she could have gone to war with her father. No, you do not. Trust me. Uh Amy (laughs) thinks that war means you sleep in a tent, you drink out of a tin mug, and you eat disagreeable food. To a lot of people, frankly, that is a fun weekend in their Airstream. (laughs) (laughs) And then Joe 
this is book Joe and movie Joe, says, being born a girl is the most disappointing thing that's ever happened to me. So we kind of hammer in the fact that Joe wanted to be a boy. Joe likes boy stuff. This first scene, tell me if you think so too, is like a play. It is pretty clumsy to me. Mm -hmm. Stilted. I agree. But the set design cannot be beat. There's paper chains. It's so homey. It's so lived in. There's lots of layers to what is sitting around. And I can really believe that people have lived there for a long time. So that part is awesome. I just don't know how they could have changed the first scene anymore. But it's really... So you say you were put off by the opening montage and then... I was too, and it kind of rolled over into this first scene, and I thought, oh no, I'm feeling very doubtful mm -hmm. that I'm going to like this. In their defense, the source material is also, to our eyes, not as um, dramatic as contemporary novels are. It's very much like they showed it. It's play-like. I think there's not a lot of depth of character, especially at the very beginning. I don't know. I guess they did this. OK, I liked it better than the opening scene. That's for sure. This was actually pretty spot on with the book. So I'm going to just describe how the four girls were described by Luz May Alcott. Meg is the oldest. She's 16, plump and fair. Joe is 15. Her hair is usually bundled up into a net, but it is her one beauty. Beth is 13. Her father had called her little tranquility. She's smooth haired, bright eyed, and she seemed to live in a very happy world of her own. And Amy, the youngest, is not given an age, but she's described as a regular snow maiden with blue eyes and yellow hair curling at the shoulders, always carried herself like a young lady, mindful of her manners and looking like Nellie Olson. I added that myself. <laughs> However, if Beth, as in the book, is 13 and Amy is younger, Amy is at the very oldest, 12 years old. Mm -hmm. And the actress, Catherine Newton, who plays her, is 21. And I think it shows. Sorry. Yes. Yes. I think that is bad. Also, those kittens are going to burn themselves up in that fireplace. And I am full of anxiety. <laughs> <laughs> okay, moving on. A lantern approaches. It's Marmy and it's Orchard House. Two big stars of the show, as far as I'm concerned. It is Orchard House. Jan Turnquist, who is the executive director of Orchard House, which is where Louisa May Alcott did her writing, and it's a museum now in Concord, Massachusetts. She was on the set as a consultant for this particular series. So Orchard House is very authentic looking, and that alone made it delightful for me. So a carriage passes. It's Lori. We know. If we know the book, we know that's Lori. And he is driving past the house to meet up with his grandfather at the big house next door, which was not the, quote, stately stone mansion of the book. Hmm. But... More like real life Louisa May Alcott's neighbor, Ralph Waldo Emerson's house in Concord. You should see a picture of it. So we know where that came from. But still, I wanted the big stone house. I understand that disappointment. <laughs> but you know what? Authentically, having been to Concord, the house that they chose is definitely more fitting, I would say. But the book literally says. I know. <laughs> stately. Stone Mansion. My head is populated with stately stone mansion. So I was like, well, whose house is that? Didn't even occur to me. Oh, wait, he's going there. Something's wrong. Marmy has just gotten back from the depot where she's been putting together, I assume with 
other ladies boxes of, quote, soldiers' comforts, of scarves and socks and mittens, usually jelly or a jar of pickles. Soldiers used to cry over a jar of apple butter. It meant the absolute world to them. We talked about that during the Clara Barton podcast. So just... um. A humble jar of preserves was something else. So they're doing good work down there at the depot. And I love that the girls want to keep involved with the project. Marmy says that they're short on mittens. And one of them says, okay, let's, we need to knit some more. So they're all involved in it, which is very authentic for the times. Though, of course, we have Joe referring to them as pokey old women who sit home and knit. So again, we are reinforced that Joe herself does not appreciate the womanly contributions to the war that she is permitted to do. The end. (laughs) Okay. These ladies sure like their mama. They get her tea. They warm her slippers. They just want to be in her orbit. Also, the candles on the tree are nearly immortal, or else the continuity person is extraordinarily diligent. (laughs) (laughs) about the candles. Usually I watch candles in a show and I'm like, "Mm, I know this is take 22. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, really. Well, actually, Christmas trees at this time in history were still fairly new. They were not even introduced to the United States until like 1850. There was an article about uh, Victoria and Albert. There was a woodcutting from their Christmas with a Christmas tree that appeared in Godey's Lady Book in 1850. So we're about 1861, 62 at this point. So this is still a new thing, this Christmas tree. In the United States, Christmas wasn't even a national holiday until 1870. Joe says that Aunt March hasn't mellowed out for the holidays, which sounded odd to me. The American Heritage Dictionary says it's from, quote, the late 1900s, by which do they mean 1994 or the late 19 aught aughts? Do you know what I mean? Uh-huh. Either way, it's 40 or 130 years too early for Joe to say mellow out. Oh, it is. Lori arrives at the fancy house next door, the inappropriate wooden house, with the nice flocked wallpaper. So the neighbors are more fancy, certainly less cozy. And we see two servants dealing with the luggage. This mean voice from upstairs says, you're late, Theodore, as if he had control over what time he arrived. And it's grandfather. It's Dumbledore. I actually wrote that in my notes, too. It's like Dumbledore part two. So um, grandpa has some seasickness advice. Stay on deck and keep your eyes on the horizon. Trust me, it works. You know what works even better? Don't get on a boat. Lori didn't have much of a choice in this particular situation. That's true. You're right. But that is about the extent of his concern, old grandpa. And I think this is a super uncomfortable situation for Lori to be in. To be around a guy you know hated the very idea of your mother, your Italian mother, who has just died. And this is the guy you have to live with. Although, for him, it looks like he's making an effort, but it's very uncomfortable. (laughs) Jonah Howard King is cast as Lori, and he could very well be the handsomest Lori I've ever seen. What? I'm sorry. It's true. 
Those dimples. Sorry. Okay. Well, Christian Bale, cover your ears and hum. He is a little bit older than I would have imagined Laurie to be. I mean, the actor is 23 and he could probably play 18 or 19, but I still think that's a little older than Book Laurie. Book Laurie is 15. I believe, or 16. Mm -hmm. Well, so Marmy reads father's letter to her daughters, which is intercut with the scenario where father has to say goodbye to the soldier who has died in his tent, presumably while wearing his coat. And leaving a huge puddle of blood on the bed. This The realism with the blood here was really good. I mean, this guy was bloody and battered, and they didn't try to make it look pretty at all. So I applaud that. So I love the tableau of the girls around Marmy while she's reading the letter. I swear that I have an edition that this pays homage to, but I went back and looked and it's the Penguin edition, but Marmy's missing. My idea was that Marmy was in the middle of this grouping on my book cover, but she's not. So... I hereby stand corrected that brain cell was indignant and raised up and fought me. But Marmy's not there. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So we understand from the text of the letter that father does not expect to be back before another year has passed. No, but his letter is very inspiring about how they're all going to make it through that year and that the country might be torn in two because we can't agree on what's right. But even in this time of darkness, when armies clash and blood is shed, we can show kindness to each other. And this is a definite preachy part that I do not approve of right here. There are smaller battles we can win within our hearts and closer to home. My daughters will fight their bosom enemies bravely and conquer themselves so beautifully that I might be prouder than ever of my little women. Which is nice. No. No. Okay. In the book, though, it, this whole scene goes on and it becomes a remembrance of how they used to play Pilgrim's Progress at Christmas. I mean, if you want to talk heavy Christianity. No, no, no. <laughs> I'm not irritated about Christianity or not Christianity. I am irritated that. I guess it's always been my thought, always, even as a small child reading this, that his main objective is to make sure to squash their personalities before he gets home. So that is what irritates me about this whole thing. Oh, I have never thought of it that way. Now that's all I'm going to (laughs) see. So, I mean, I guess I can see um, maybe some rounding of corners, but I, I don't like his. And, you know, he is a paterfamilias, so I guess paternalistic fits him, but he, you know, whatever. So Meg has to work on her snobbery, if we have to name it. We know Joe has to work on her temper, although I think it's fine. Whatever. Beth has to work on her shyness. I also think that's fine. More on that later. And Amy has to work on her vanity let's just say book amy has to work on her vanity movie amy has to work on removing her psychopathic tendencies (laughs) again more on that later um book beth says this is really cute that her enemy is dishes and dusters and envying girls with nice pianos and being afraid of people so she has a lot to work on i would think so It is Christmas morning scenery, which is lovely. And we see Marmy slipping the books under the pillows of her daughters. And for my entire life, I assumed this was copies of Pilgrim's Progress because they had just been talking about Pilgrim's Progress. 
But it dawned on me, literally while we were recording the Louisa May Alcott episode of the History Chicks, that this is actually probably Bibles and not Pilgrim's Progress. And it blew my mind. (laughs) (laughs) I thought that it was smaller versions, like pamphlet size books, not big hardcover books in my head. Isn't that weird? We have these images from childhood that we've just carried around and they might not be right. (laughs) Wow. Or alternatively, we have pictures of stately houses that are right. Mm. (laughs) Okay. So anyway. (laughs) Well, at this point, I can tell you the thing that bugs me the most visually about this particular series is the impossible snow. The snow is stuck to everything. And I don't know if it's post-production snow or, you know, snow on the set, but it doesn't snow an awful lot. The snow never accumulates and it's stuck to everything in a way that nature doesn't have it stuck to things. Visually, very pretty, makes everything white and it's uh, gorgeous to look at, but realistically, not so good. And that's going to be my hang up. You can hang up on the stone house and I'm going to hang up about the snow. (laughs) Well, and you grew up in New England, so you should know what it's supposed to look like. I would think so. All right. So the girls and Hannah, who is their servant, talk about breakfast and where Marmy is. The first shot we see in this is a skillet with butter sizzling on it. And it's it's like, oh, my goodness, we're going to have a great breakfast here. And the girls all come down. They're in their pajamas and their robes and their hair still down from the nighttime and they're all excited because it's Christmas morning and they're going to get things like bacon and maple syrup, which Amy and Joe keep sticking their fingers in the jar of maple syrup, which was like, stop. That's everybody. Stop it. Well, Hannah does not (laughs) hesitate to yell at them. Kindly get your fingers out of the syrup. Um, And I love Hannah's accent. Not that I can do it, but she explains where Marmy is, that there was someone wailing and hammering at the door. (laughs) All of them like to die, she says. And I say that all the time. I wonder if I got that from some kind of Irish forebear. Well, Marmy comes back. Where have you been? And she has a face on and everyone stops to look at her. She explains that she has been to the worst place that she can imagine. There is a poor mother with a newborn Five children, they don't have any wood for a fire. They don't have any food or clothes. And it is a very, very miserable situation. And there's really not a lot of conversation about what is going to happen. However, these children have been brought up in this house and they fully well know what is expected of them here. Amy's going to have to give up her bacon. I'm sorry, Amy. It's going to happen. And they all just agree to it with their eyes. It's like, okay, let's get this food and let's bring it over to them and take care of them because that's what we do. The marches set out in the snow with their own breakfast and Joe and Lori meet. And I love this procession. Here's one thing I love. Amy says, I'm carrying the bacon. It's tormenting me like the legions of the damned. I had to look that up. And there is a little joke in here. Oh. Yeah. I don't know how to say the chapters of the Bible, as that is not my department, but in Mark chapter 5, verses 1 to 20, did I do that right? Yeah, you sure did. Um, So Jesus came along, and there was a man who the villagers had shut up because he was infested with a legion of demons. I would say he probably was mentally ill, but that's okay, whatever works. And he told the demons, Jesus did, to get out of that man and go into the pigs that are in the field. And then Jesus drove the pigs over the cliff. 
Now, I don't think there was compensation for the pig owners. That is a very problematic story. But the fact that she is smelling the bacon and saying (laughs) it's tormenting her like the legions of the damned. The legions of the damned are pigs. That is very funny. That didn't occur to me. But as far as a reward for the farmers, if they had witnessed it, they got eternal salvation. So eternal starvation because they ain't got no more pigs. Okay. Okay. (laughs) So we don't see it, but I wonder if Meg is afraid that people will see this unconventional parade and judge it. Mm -hmm. She's the only one really that can remember how rich they used to be. And I think her goodness and her desire for worldly greatness are always in a battle, always in a battle. And I'm glad the goodness wins because, you know, but I can just see her going, oh, please be sleeping in all of my lady friends. Like anyway, Lori comes out. He's got a soccer ball. He comes out of the gate. I'm so sorry, miss. I could have broken your. And then he's like (laughs) coffee service. (laughs) Okay. Just a scene or two ago. Joe can't even cross a room with a cup of tea and a small pot without tripping. But I'm supposed to believe she's carrying this whole tray with this big pot of coffee and these other bowls of things across town on snowy streets without tripping or spilling anything. Yeah, the whole time I thought there was going to be chaos happening. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. Joe tells Lori that she just wants to drink all the coffee. And I heard that. I was like, she is a writer. (laughs) Well, in the book, that was a big treat. They only had it at Christmas. It was expensive, Mm -hmm. very expensive. And so they are literally giving up something they don't have very often. Um, She's pretty cheerful about being clumsy, though. She tells him about their mission, but she's not a fine lady. He's so freaking cute, by the way. He explains that his grandfather gave him this soccer ball, so he has to pretend to be having fun. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, he just came from Europe, and he's playing with a soccer ball. And I'm like, soccer? Did we call it soccer back then? Would Lori have called it soccer? Um, Apparently, we were playing soccer here in the United States in the 1860s, and the word soccer actually comes from England because there was two different kinds of football. There's the rugby kind, and then there was an association football. The rugby kind became rugger, and the SOC and association became soccer. I keep seeing these reports of this Stefan Sermansky from the University of Michigan who researched all this, and all it says is they took the word association and made soccer out of it, but it came from Britain, and then they didn't like that the Americans were using it, so they went back to football. The end. (laughs) And Mr. Lawrence is ahead of the time, too, because it didn't actually become big here in the United States for another 40 or 50 years. So he's a trendsetter, Mr. Lawrence is. Or in a more linear fashion, we just gave him a ball. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Because he's a boy. (laughs) It might not be that deep of a thing. I'm just saying the set designer might just have given him a ball. Yeah. Here we are like analyzing soccer and, (laughs) you know, etymologies and this and that. But it could just be like, oh, no, what will we have him do? Give him a ball. (laughs) So the girls go through town to the Hummel's miserable house. It really is wretched. A back alley that you can tell Joe didn't even realize existed. It is like seven levels worse than these girls had imagined. No presents, honestly, at this point. Seems like first world problems now. They had butter. They had bacon. They have a servant. They have plenty of firewood. They have clothes. They have shoes. They have a blanket. All of them are appalled. All of them. And they're just standing there with their mouths open. And Marmy realizes, okay, that's awkward. And starts giving them jobs. 
Yeah, I thought Marmee's the way she handled this, like, this is their life. Don't make them feel bad about it. She didn't even have to say that just by treating the family as human beings like they were, like she would treat her next door neighbor. She just told the kids, just you do this, you do that, and let's get things going here. I'm, I'm giving her props for this because she's not like, let's help these poor people out. It's just like, give the kids some oatmeal. Let's get something hot for mom, you know, and I think that probably made the Hummels feel very good. There was more of it in the book than they did here, but... Well, also, Louisa May Alcott's mother did work as a social worker, and mm-hmm. so this would be something that she was more accustomed to, although in real life, Abba Alcott got paid a wage by society ladies to handle this, and in the movies, all the movies, Marmy's doing this out of a sense of benevolent Lady Bountiful, so it's a little misleading, but... Mm-hmm. There's that. Um, Also, two things. Practically speaking, in the book, Hannah herself uses her own cloak to stop up the window. Nobody has to order her to do it with her hat or whatever. So Hannah did not get credit for being a good soul in the movie. Also, look right behind Joe when she says, what am I supposed to do to cover that window? There is a painting bigger than the window. I saw that. Right behind her head. (laughs) That was a big window. And that was a small hat. I don't know how that was supposed to work. You could simply move the picture in front of the window. Yep. So back at home, Joe is overwhelmed. Joe is sad. Joe is laying in bed just crying and Marmy is there trying to make her feel better. Joe had never realized that people lived like that. She had never seen that level of poverty before. And it just broke her heart. And, you know, Marmy's just saying this is the way it is. But why don't you come downstairs? There's a surprise for you. She comes downstairs and there's Christmas feast. Pink ice cream, white ice cream, flowers, oranges, candies, a ham. In the book, it's a present for the opening of their play. So we are not going to get any Rodrigo. Rodrigo would have been here by now. I know. But whatever. Now, I will say I actually got tears in my eyes when Joe goes to the window and waves at Lori. It theoretically came from Grandpa, but you know that Lori, who had found out at the gate what they were doing, had mentioned it to his grandfather. And the grandfather reached in his pocket and sent all of this stuff over, but it came from Lori. So she sees him in the window and he waves back. Oh, that is so cute. And I wish she hadn't shut the curtain. I mean, he does too, certainly. Um, That is a book reference. In the the book, Laurie says, I often look down at your window where the flowers are. And when the lamps are lighted, it's like looking at a picture to see the fire and you all around the table with your mother. Her face is right opposite you. And it looks so sweet behind the flowers. I can't help watching it. I haven't got any mother, you know. And Joe says, we'll never draw the curtain anymore. And I give you leave to look as much as you like. Whereas in this, she just thanks Lori and closes the curtain so he can't see anything. <laughs> I know. Harsh. Poor movie Lori. So lonesome. So now we are getting ready for some kind of party. Amy is my favorite part here, I guess. <laughs> Joe is curling Meg's hair. And there's a smell. And Amy's like, even I can smell it. And I have a very flat nose. <laughs> And it's not good. The number of times I've burnt my hair on the hob in this kitchen will appall you, by the way. So do I know. How? Well, look, you'll be leaning over and your hair will come out from behind your back and swing out and just catch on fire. Okay. 
Happens all the time. And arms of sweaters, I've burnt them off. I've burnt so many sweaters right at the elbow. Okay, that I can actually see. And you do have very long hair. <laughs> it's like Joe Long, almost. Okay, again, watch Amy's face. When the burnt curls come off Meg's head, she is actually smiling. Yes, I'm so glad this is happening in front of me. I'm. This is great spectator sport here. Well, and of course, book Amy is proud that she's the only one that has curly hair. So she'll never have to go through this. Well, it's not as though you were Joe, whose hair is her one beauty. Amy could always be counted on to smooth over a situation. (laughs) Over at the Lawrence estate, Lori plays the wrong piano. Okay, so Lori comes down. He's ready for an evening. You know, he's got his white tie and tails on. And he sees a piano in the hallway and he opens it up and starts playing. And again, the thunderous voice of his grandfather comes down the stairs, not that piano. If you must play, there's a concert grand in the darn room. Nobody plays that piano anymore, and I don't permit it. Well, and Lori's confused a little. He apologizes. The whole setup's new to him. Um, <laughs> he's not sure why this piano would be off limits, and we don't know as the audience either. And I'm sure this is meant to be super cryptic. Hmm. Moving on. Meg and Joe are walking to the party and making some deals. Meg suggests that they swap gloves because we know Joe has the lemonade stained gloves and they're really ratty. So Meg would like one nice glove and one ratty glove for each of them, which I thought was fair. Although I don't understand why she cares at all. Joe will go with no gloves and she doesn't care. And Meg's like, you cannot. Proper ladies do not Go to balls without gloves. And of course, Joe's position is, I think we have established I am not a proper lady. But if it's that important to you, and Meg says it is, fine, then we'll do this thing. I think Meg believes that her job is to help Joe along and help her become more of a lady. So that's kind of fitting, I suppose, (laughs) that she would do this lesson. I mean, in the book, to be a lady, you'd have a nice handkerchief, neat boots and gloves. So... So, yes, and in that vein, Meg devises another signal. If Joe is acting tomboyish or in any way inappropriate, what are the chances? Meg is going to raise her eyebrows in ladylike fashion if she catches Joe doing something that she oughtn't to be doing. Fine. Well, when they're at the dance, Meg's eyebrows get a workout almost immediately. (laughs) Meg is dancing by... And Joe is standing with the wallflowers and not smiling because that is super fun to watch people dance and be forbidden to do so is super fun. So, yeah, she goes by and raises her eyebrows. Smile, smile. (laughs) I love that uh, Joe has her dance card on her wrist, even though there's nothing in it. She has no intention of dancing. We know she doesn't want to dance. She doesn't want to be there for the dancing part. Well, she's been forbidden from dancing because the whole back of her dress is burnt up. Did they mention that in this? They, during that initial scene, I I can't Mm -hmm. tell how much they mentioned and how much I just happened to know, Mm -hmm. but Meg is actually mending her dress by turning the back panel back to front and sewing it back on her dress. So that's what she's doing. And I think the assumption is that if you've read the book, you know that the whole back was all burnt up. So Mm -hmm. I don't think they were specific, but I can't separate that because I know the story so well. They were not specific because I was looking out for it. 
Because I know that they talked about it in that first scene. I got that. And I'm like, oh, so they're starting to lay the groundwork for the burnt dress at the party. But there's really no mention of it. There's a they pull the back of the skirt and look at it, but it's not they don't talk about it. If you don't know the story, you don't know that her dress is supposed to be burnt up. Ah, so the movie is kind of making it seem like she is a voluntary or involuntary wallflower for dance purposes with nothing to do with a wardrobe malfunction. Exactly. Hmm. Well, in any case, Joe goes off to find a less conspicuous place to be bored. (laughs) (laughs) And as she goes away, we see Meg go by and um, good job getting the right flag. We see the flag with the circular stars prop department. Mm -hmm. Ten points for you. (laughs) I thought this was also another example of how the, the costuming of this particular series. It was wonderful because the March girls dresses are a lot plainer. Then some of the other young ladies in the room with more ornate party dresses, you can see the differences, but they didn't like hit you over the head with, oh, the March girls don't have a lot of money. Right. So now um, Meg comes to find Joe where she's hiding in the amazingly realistic retiring room. (laughs) She asked Joe, who's staring in front of a mirror, if she has any dances. And Joe's like, no, of course not. (laughs) And bless them, they had Meg Tinkle on camera. The historical accuracy is epic. The one time that I've ever seen anyone casually go through and simply tinkle while she's talking to someone. (laughs) At first, I thought she was just sitting down because she's talking about how her shoes are pinching her feet. She is sitting down. (laughs) Yeah, on the chamber pot. And that's actually what was in these retiring rooms. It was like the lounge for the women folk to fix their hair and tinkle. So, yay. (laughs) Think about this. It's someone's whole job tonight to deal with that chamber pot with all those guests in the house. In real life, there would be an attendant in that retiring room whose job it was right then to take care of that little bit of damp business. (laughs) Well, and also the retiring room would be full of ladies maids. Mm-hmm. To help you sew because you're, you know, you rip your hems out all the time um, doing those dances. You know, when, you're da- when your dress touches the ground and you're jumping around, um, there's someone there to help you fix your costume. And I didn't see any of those ladies. So maybe not so amazingly realistic except for the peeing. <laughs> Can you explain something to me? Because I kept playing it over and over again trying to get this. Hmm. Meg, Meg says, Ned Moffat has engaged me for the summer while she's on the toilet. Well, on the chamber pot. I don't think she says the summer. I think she just names a dance. Oh. Here, you know what? Actually, hold on. I can actually find this because I have the transcript. I'll just post a link to it if anyone wants it. I actually had to use it several times. Let's see. We're at the bacon. We're at the ice cream. We're at the... Ned Moffat has engaged me for supper. Okay. Thank you. I'm like, (laughs) summer? What? I don't understand. (laughs) Okay, that makes a lot more sense than summer. (laughs) Okay. At home, Beth is playing the piano and Amy is drawing. Everybody is practicing their hobbies. Amy is bossing Marmy around. Marmy is posing for Amy, who's doing a charcoal sketch while Beth plays Oh Holy Night on the piano. Quite lovely. It's a lovely evening. Amy shows her sketch, which everybody laughs at, although I thought it was really good. Well, and then Hannah says, you look like you work in a coal mine. (laughs) Well, she's a charcoal sketch, so any shading would look like. And she is a kid, so she's just learning. She's trying to hit her mom up for art lessons. She's talking about Susie Perkins, who has three art lessons a week. Isn't that great, mom? Wouldn't that be nice, mom? (laughs) 
<laughs> I, you know, mine does that all the time too. You know, Owen takes parkour. And then Jet takes parkour. Well, that's true. He's an only child. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm thinking this works a lot better in your house than it does in mine. <laughs> oh, it works great in my house. You don't even have to fish that much. Um, uh, yeah. And I'm not sure. I guess you think that we're supposed to think it's good. I thought that Marmy had a very sarcastic um, look on her face when she said something like, well, I have a very accomplished daughter, but maybe she was being sincere because then right on the back of her is Hannah talking about the coal mines. I just wasn't sure if I was supposed to think it was good or not good. I didn't know. Maybe you were supposed to decide for yourself. Oh, none of my kids could draw that well at 13. So Joe's writing comes up, speaking of hobby night, and Marmy warns Amy to leave Joe to write in peace. So I think we can forget vanity. I think Amy needs to work on her bitchery. <laughs> <laughs> Am I wrong? And it seems like the whole family knows it too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Then, and just the way she says it, just like you know, Joe's writing a novel. I've seen the pages piled up in the garret. Like Joe is doing something wrong. She's writing a book. She's not writing graphic uh, novels and bodice rippers. I guess yes, she is actually in the book. She's writing fairy tales. That's what the story continues on with. It talks about the fairy tales, which is what Louise May Alcott's first book was. Oh, okay. I see what you're saying. The graphic novels and bodice rippers came later. In this series, we do get there. And in Louise May Alcott's own life, fairy tales were first. You're right. You're right. So more dancing at the dance, but not for Joe, who hides in the coat room with Lori. They're sort of cute. Again, though, this scene, not all the show, but this scene seems like a play to me again. Oh, I guess it kind of does. Blah, blah, blah. And now you say your line. Okay, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> well, neither one of those actors has a whole lot of experience. This is the first um, professional job for Maya Hawke, who is the daughter of Ethan Hawke and Uma Thurman, if you're wondering why she looks familiar to you. I bet that she is sick to death of being told she looks like her mother. <laughs> I'm sure she is. But her mother's gorgeous. Anyway. <laughs> well, anyway. That's um, who she is. <laughs> so Lori does need a tutor, uh, especially in French, because he does say, among other things, salle de fumez, which is not how you say the smoking room, but that's okay. Um, I love the whole concept of Lori looking at them wistfully out of his window, not knowing who's who, knowing their names, which is actually very book accurate, the little fair one or the little dark one. And they're having a pretty good conversation all about his education and this and that. And then Meg comes in and she starts talking immediately, thinking it's just Joe. How did she find Joe in there? I don't know. Uh, I turned my ankle on the gallop which is another dance. We'll have to post a video. And it looks like super fun, but you do jump around. And if you've got really, really tight high heels that you got out of the charity box, you might sprain your ankle. <laughs> I like the way that Joe reacts, though. It's just such a sister thing. You know, she's not like, you know, Marmy would be like, oh, my child, let me fix your ankle. She's like laughing at her. 
It's like, we need a stretcher. Ha ha ha. I think Joe always takes pains to poke at Meg's pretensions on purpose. I mean, do you think she does it on purpose to be perverse? I'm going to bypass the netting basket and get the kitchen chicken leg shears to cut everyone's <laughs> hair. Meg would rather her say, oh, let me get you the ammonium salts and deuce it and I'll procure you some ice. But instead she goes, ha ha, we need a stretcher. And she doesn't even offer her chair. No. She's still sitting there <laughs> and making Meg stand. In Meg's defense, she's still pretty chill about it. She's not really dramatic, I didn't think. She was kind of laughing at herself. I think she had to maintain a little bit, you know, propriety, because there was a boy in the room, a third party, non-family member. She would prefer that Joe was in there by herself. Well, because then they had to have a dimple contest to see whose dimples were deeper. <laughs> Between Meg and Lori, they have like the dimple market cornered for this entire series. I'm just going to have a call back to the 1994 and Kirsten Dunst dimples win. <laughs> little Amy 1994 wins. I don't know. Little Jonah Howard King's got some pretty deep ones. You know, I found a YouTube video of him like playing the guitar and singing. I'll put it in the show notes. It was adorable. You know, you just reminded me of something else I'm missing from this adaptation. In the book, and I think in the 1994 version, Joe and Lori go into an empty room or an empty hallway and have their own dance party. Maybe they couldn't include that because they're kind of making it seem like Joe is just avoiding dancing or being avoided. Mm, dang it, that was a cute scene. Well, you can't have everything. M moving on. Anyway... Marmy is writing a letter to father. We don't, you know, see the text of it or anything. And I, as a matter of fact, I'm not 100% sure it's a letter to father, but that's what I assume it is. When the partygoers come home. I think Marmy's missing her husband more than she lets on. And that's only natural. You want to keep some of your deeper feelings from your children. But in come two drunken Egypts. One has no shoes on. Remember how much... <laughs> they made of that on the help set in the 1950s. You know, death by no husband, death <laughs> by no shoes. Nice ladies don't go barefoot, you know. And then, you know, Mr. Willoughby taking Marianne's shoe off to touch her ankle was a dream come true for everyone on Earth in 1810. So ankles are something else. And here's her daughter just walking in with two men, folk, and no shoes. And she is carried in by Mr. Brooke. So she's barefoot and in a man's arms and giggling. She's raised them all sheltered. And the what? Second time out, they drag back men. Ai Chihuahua. <laughs> she can't really be rude to these total strangers, these men. But her thank you is just about as cold as it can be, I think. <laughs> oh, yeah. I love the part where she said, Marmy says, I warned you about those high heeled shoes. And uh, Meg is on the stairs giggling, going, it was a case of be elegant or die. There's drama for you. <laughs> well, that's from the book, too. That's a quote. I love the way she delivered it. I love that they left that in there. <laughs> so Marmy comes to give Meg a kiss and she suddenly realizes, like, smells the aroma of alcohol. She says, have you been drinking wine? And I love how innocent Meg is when she asks if Punch has wine in it. It's so <laughs> obvious that she was so innocent she was just thirsty she's the one that was dancing so she probably drank more because she was tired you know like you needed refreshment after the radawa and all this stuff jumping around joe was just sitting in the closet that's right oh and she grabs uh, her mother's hand and the mom can't be 
mad. I mean, because it's just literally so obvious that Meg didn't know there was wine in the punch. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. And she, but she eye rolls, Marmy eye rolls. And I'm like, that's like very universal still. That's very relatable. And then across the hall, Joe and Beth are very cozy in their room. And I like this way of explaining that Joe and Beth are close. And also that Joe is not very maternal. She has chopped the top of her doll's head off and Beth found it in the rag bag and saved it, etc. We like the little book notifications that we get in this scene. I do like that Beth is perceptive enough to think that Lori is a very lonely person. And Joe looks at her and you could tell like, I'm not a lonely person. I have you. It's pretty cozy and nice. Mm-hmm. And it's really obvious of Lori that he's stalking this entire family if everybody knows that he's staring out the window at him all the time. The stalking of the marches. So the holidays are obviously very, very over. The first thing we see is Hannah unceremoniously dragging the Christmas tree out. So in the book, that dance, the dance they just left, was held on New Year's Eve. So I'm guessing this is January 1st, business as usual? I would assume so, although I was so hung up on who's going to get that tree. Do they have trash guys to come? I don't think so. Well, this is organic recycling time. Probably that she's just going to have it for kindling or something. I'm sure that anybody it, like the Hummels that wanted firewood would come get it. I don't think you have to wait it, very long. Maybe. In my town, we have a thing where you donate your Christmas tree and they put it in the lake because it's like a fish habitat. We have a huge I, lake here. Oh, and I think here they chip them and then you can go get free mulch. Oh, nice. Both very green. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, haha, Amy cannot find her shoes. Her voice is piercing as heck, and I want to punch her. Mommy, mommy. She says like nine times. Ah, uh, Marmy is every mom on earth. If you didn't put your shoes away, do not expect them to stay put. <laughs> She's mad, and I'm like, woo, this is like realistic, Marmy. Susan Sarandon would never say that. No, she would. What What do we need to learn from this, children? Yeah. Beth is on the couch with a headache and she's like, suck it up. You can't take anything for it. And Meg has another headache because she's hungover. Right. So she tells her, just go outside and walk around. It'll go away. She yeah. wants everybody out of the house. She wants her morning back. She's had them there for too long. She needs this is so relatable to me. Maybe this was me, you know, putting myself in the situation. It's like, get out of the door. It's Monday morning. Everybody out, 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 out. <laughs> Well, also, I don't think Beth has a headache. I think Beth has her period. You know what? I thought so, too. But they said headache. So I went with that. But yeah, I agree. Because she doesn't she say something like it happens to all of us or something. She said all girls get headaches. She'll just have to bear it. I don't know. So, yes, I think that was a euphemism, which is why everyone else has to rush around and Beth is allowed to lie on the sofa. Meg, on the other hand, could use Jackie O's sunglasses and a big fat cheeseburger. Baby's first hangover. Um, so she wants to take some belladonna. And I looked that up. Guess what it's also called? Deadly nightshade. It is. It was used by Agrippina the Younger to have Emperor Claudius poisoned. Or not, because we talked about right. that in the Agrippina episode. Right. Thank you. Let's just say... Someone used it in Roman times. Many people used it in Roman times. It was a tough place. And I guess almost all medicine is probably poison in certain doses. So the fact that you can use deadly nightshade as medicine actually seems reasonable to me. I think it's an ingredient in the drops that your eye doctor gives you to dilate your eyes. During the Renaissance, women used to use belladonna eye drops to give themselves that 
permanently far-sighted, vague look that was so fashionable. On a regular basis and make mm-hmm. yourself go blind. The end. <laughs> Don't let Marmy and Louisa May Alcott trick you into thinking this is some sort of harmless substance. Belladonna is actually so poisonous that just a couple of berries could poison a child and just a few more could kill a grown adult. So I would definitely not use literally garden variety belladonna for anything. It is an ingredient in some modern medicines, you know, fine chemistry or whatever. But as to just wantonly taking the plant and doing things with it, I would definitely stay away. So there's a little warning from me to you, despite the frivolous nature with which these characters seem to be taking it. So um, I like how she loses her temper. Book Marmy just says, please, calm down. I need to finish my letter. And she scratches out like the third sentence she has messed up. That's as far as she goes. But this one's like, go to school, go to work. I kind of don't like it. Though I will say it's much more like Louisa May Alcott's own mother, Abba, the person Marmy was based on. But you know, hold it together, Marmy. You're an idealized fictional character here. (laughs) I'm not sure why she's rubbing me the wrong way. I think I needed a little more serenity and a lot Less Abba Alcott. That's what I think. All right. So Joe arrives at Aunt March's. Aunt March's house, which is not as grand, again, as I had pictured in my mind. Aunt March's house just looks like my house. I guess I want some sort of castle thing or a big brick house. I don't know. No, I agree with you on this call. Definitely. I wanted something that was more away from the road and less homey. I do love Angela Lansbury, though. My child walked through and said, are you watching Nanny McPhee? Which I had a hard time remembering. And I was like, oh, yeah, Angela Lansbury did play functionally the same character, maybe a little bit more cartoony in Nanny McPhee. Do you remember that movie? I do. Good call, Jet. Yeah, I I loved her in this role. I thought she was great. I mean, the woman's in her 90s. Well, she's good for this part. So she asks her niece, I assume you had a good holiday with your family. The homespun pleasures of the hearth (laughs) made me laugh. It's like she's trying to be friendly, but she's kind of like being snotty. She explains that her parrot was very grieved by your absence. Likewise, says Joe. Not likewise. She wishes that parrot would die. (laughs) Because Joe is standing there at the in this room with this ginormous parrot on her arm, just kind of looking at it like, okay, he's going to peck me anytime now. Yeah, it's like when you're at a party and those people are like, our dog likes you. And meanwhile, this big mastiff is fixing to bite you. <laughs> Beth is very shy, as indicated before. And Marmy is trying to get her to face her fears. The two are doing their daily bread making because we need to make our own bread in this era. And they talk about a letter that Mr. Lawrence had sent inviting Beth to come over and play the grand piano in his house. That's just wonderful. It's right next door. Beth loves to play the piano. It's a perfect fit. But Beth is anxiety girl. And she is just not up for it at all. And Marmy says, if you don't engage with the world, all you'll be running is your own prison. (laughs) I disagree with this whole premise. Bullying a shy person and sort of explaining that she's letting her father down is no way to get a shy person to participate. Mm -hmm. Maybe jumping in the deep end was considered the best practice in 1863, but... 
why does she have to engage with the world? What difference does it make? She does not, is my opinion. Um, I agree with you, although Beth is realizing that her anxiety is something that she has to deal with. And she calls it one of her bosom enemies. She feels like it's something she needs to overcome. Only because people keep telling her that. True. Now, one of my kids has a diagnosed anxiety disorder and she is very open about it. And I'd asked her, you know, because Beth is her in some regards, if she had any advice and she's really overcome a lot of her anxiety and it ties into what you were just talking about, about making them change. The one thing that my daughter felt was the best piece of wisdom is that worrying like crazy about things that are beyond your control is going to get you nowhere. And that one of the kindest things you can do for yourself is remember that the only well-being you are responsible for is your own. And it's hard and it takes years to figure out how to do it. But sometimes you just have to step back and say, it's not my problem. So it's not Beth's problem that she doesn't want to go play the piano. She doesn't have to. She's only trying to make people happy by doing it. Right. So that's why I got irritated at Marmy. Now, I will say Marmy and father let her stay home because, and I quote, school troubled your spirits. So they do know her well enough not to put her through that kind of torture. Amy has a whole other kind of personality and can go and hard knock herself, you know, to death or whatever. But at least they know her well enough to keep her home from school. But I, and maybe Marmy doesn't think it's that much pressure. It's the old man that lives next door. How hard can it be? I think she's losing her patience. Mm -hmm. Well, as a parent of a kid with anxiety issues that you just can't relate to, you think they're just being stubborn and you try everything in your arsenal and some things are really fails like trying to force your kid next door to the old man's house that's a fail but some things you do are successful like waiting them out and letting them make their own decisions so i think that's a very realistic parenting quality that marmy has here she's she's doing a fail that's for sure but it's it's something that any parent of kids with anxiety disorder would do and I'm, I'm diagnosing Beth here, but that's what I think she had. She also has a good accent, too, because this actress is as British as British can be. And I caught none of it. I know. Me either. She is so good. I am sorry, Claire Danes. This Beth wins. I mean, triumphs over you. Completely agree. She's more awkward looking than Claire Danes ever could be. She's more waifish looking, um, which is fitting for the story. As much as I love Claire Danes, I, I thought she was miscast in that role. Mm -hmm. We get a sense of what life is like over at Aunt March's house. Joe is on the sofa. This room is very formal. There's these huge lamps that look like ladies' hats flanking the sides of this sofa. And she's reading to Aunt March, and she looks like she's falling asleep, Aunt March is. So Joe kind of slows down herself and yawns, and that's when Aunt March realizes she's stopped talking, and she wakes up and admonishes Joe right there on the spot. And I am sorry to say that I actually found some of Belsham's essays quite interesting, which probably says a little bit more about me than it does <laughs> about Belgium's essays. <laughs> but no, uh, not the part that Joe's reading, which is, you know, boring, I guess. She says, in such times of dangerous trial, many would be deterred inquiring into and embracing the truth, which is, of course, perhaps not the most exciting reading material. But 
in the book, Joe takes the opportunity of her aunt falling asleep to sneak out a book called The Vicar of Wakefield by Oliver Goldsmith, which I can heartily, in fact, recommend. It's a classic that not very many people have read and, of course, is now making me crave gooseberry tarts, which figures prominently in the story. I actually think they sell gooseberry pie filling at my local grocery store, so I might have to take care of that. But the movie does not go into all that for reasons of narrative economy, of course, but we will provide you a link where you can read the book yourself. It is certainly in the public domain as it is from the year 1766. Anyway, also the lamp right beside her aunt looks so much like a hummingbird feeder that I was distracted the whole time. Like, why does she have a hummingbird feeder in her house? It's just a lamp. That was your lamp and mine were the two that were by Joe. (laughs) Excellent lighting choices there, set designer. (laughs) Well, Aunt March is direct, I guess we should say. I should have taken Margaret on, not you. (laughs) But Joe is equally direct because she just throws it back to her. She's like, Meg already has a job. She's taking care of four small children. So Meg wasn't even available to help you. I love that she gave it back to her. Well, in the book. Joe often gets irritated and argues with Aunt March and then slams out of the house and goes home and refuses to come back. And Aunt March sends for her, like, please come back. I'm sorry. And then they make up and she goes back. So it's not um, out of the realm of source material to have Joe give it back to her, Mm -hmm. which I liked. I liked that a lot. You always forget that. You think that Joe's just like taking it all the time. She's not. Mm -mm. Although I will say that Aunt March is ostensibly referring to Meg's job with four children, but she's actually referring to the March family. Four children cause nothing but heartache, headache, and indigestion. And then she goes on to say, the stupidest thing your mother ever did was marry my nephew. He's filled his head with theology and philosophizing and didn't leave room for one grain of business acumen. Who does that sound like, History Chicks listeners? Pause for answer because you all know it. (laughs) Bronson Alcott, Louisa May Alcott's own father, whose ideals caused his family nearly to starve to death several times during Louisa May Alcott's childhood. So Papa did not come off very well. I hope you and your sisters learn from her example and do not do likewise. And I'm reading into that marry a wealthy man or at least a work ethic man. At least that last part is uh, good advice. I, I completely agree. There is a glorious snowball fight outside. All the girls are home. They run outside. There's some more impossible snow that's covering every surface (laughs) of everything you can see. And there's only like an inch of it on the ground. And yeah, that's snow. It was starting to get to me. Again, very beautiful stylistically, but it's a fake winter wonderland. And everybody's squealing and throwing snowballs. Lori is involved. Lori is like the fifth child at this point. He's always over there. They're all having this snowball fight. It's fun. The kids having fun. I like the artistic license there at the end when everybody's down making slow-mo snow angels. This doesn't really further the story at all, necessarily. It's just um, a nice little intermission, and I liked it a lot. Kind of um, an emotional thing rather than a story-building thing. Upstairs in the attic, or the garret, as they say, Joe is trying to write, and Lori is restless. He's bored. He will not stop talking. Joe has her writing hat on. So we know at this point not to interrupt her, although we know from the book, you're not supposed to interrupt her. But this is the first time we've really seen her writing in the series. And she's just writing along. But he's so bored. He's just sitting there 
realizing that writing is not a spectator sport, but he doesn't have anywhere else to go. And he's trying to engage her in conversation and she wants no part of it. They can't even agree on what the room is. He says it's a regular castle in the air. And she says, no, this Garrett is a chamber of industry, which in my head, I was like, there's Louisa May Alcott right there. Because to her, writing was a job. It was something you had to do to survive. And it wasn't this artsy, dreamy existence. It was get the words on the paper, get them out, get them sold. It was a job. And that is actually called out specifically in the second episode. So yes, that is definitely the theme running through this Joe's mind right now. She has written 156 pages. Did you try to figure out how many words that was? Oh, huh. Oh, I did. Well, first I looked at my own notes, but then later on we see a, one of her pages. So I, I was able to count the letters and how many lines she could fit on a page. And 156 pages is about 37,000 words. The Wizard of Oz, the novel, is 40,000 words to give you an idea of book size. Anyone who's done NaNoWriMo, you know when you're at, you know, almost 38,000, you're getting excited because you're getting close to the goal of 50. So she's done a lot. So we should read that as a nearly complete novel is sitting on Joe's desk. So put a pin in that. We'll come at that later. <laughs> Lori cannot seem to find his purpose. You know, he does not want to be a merchant like his grandpa. Joe says, if I was a boy, I would just run away and I wouldn't come back till I did whatever the heck I wanted to do. And he's like, well, let's run away then. And he means it. And she does not. She's more realistic. If they did run away, wouldn't they have to get married anyway? One would think. Yeah. In this series, at this point, I'm like, Lori is totally crushing on Joe. And Joe is just looking at him as a brother. None of the looks that Lori is giving her does she return. Nope. But she does tell him that after I finish this chapter, you know, I'll go pack my trunk because castles in the air need keys. And I sometimes think this is mine. Which I think is a little homage to the real Louisa May Alcott, whose castle in the air was not necessarily literary success, but being able to provide for her family in a way that Mr. Alcott never was able to. And we all know, except Lori, that she's not really going to go pack her trunk. That is fully sarcasm. Yes, I'm probably going to go pack my trunk. Poor Lori. I find it in my heart to feel sorry for his young love. Meg and Joe are going to the theater without Amy. We're dressing again. We're lacing up our corsets. We're in our undergarments. And it's only Joe and Meg. And they're talking about their evening at the theater when Amy comes in and tries to invite herself. But Joe says, no, Lori invited us. You weren't invited. You can't come. And psycho Amy starts to turn here. And she's like, of course I can come. She starts to get mad. Well, Meg does offer to buy her a ticket. But then Meg is baffled by Joe's pointing out of the etiquette. None of the girls by etiquette is going to be able to sit by themselves. You've got four tickets together and one last minute ticket far away. So one of the guys, one of the guys that paid for and arranged this whole expedition is going to have to suck it up and be the gentleman and go sit by himself. That is literally what is going to happen. They are some well brought up young men. Mm -hmm. They are going to have no fun and they're the ones that set up the whole thing. That is not cool. That really would be rude, by the way. Joe's not making it up. That is really not appropriate. I was kind of surprised that Meg was like, you know, oh, you can come. I'll buy you a ticket. 
when Meg is like the stickler for propriety. I just think she didn't think it through. You know, Amy is her special pet and she wants Mm -hmm. to be nice to Amy. She wants to smooth everything over for Amy the way that Joe does with Beth. And and that was very open in the book, too. But um, her best wishes are baffled by the (laughs) society that she lives in. Amy calls the play Seven Princesses of the Diamond Lake. In the book, it's Seven Castles of the Diamond Lake, but it doesn't matter because it's actually Seven Castles of the Passions, <laughs> which <That's> is, right. <laughs> so it doesn't matter. <laughs> it's Seven Somethings of the Something Else, and that's what they're going to go see, and it's a comedy, and um, it is kind of a big deal. Well, Amy, rather than understand about society, turns the full force of her anger on Joe. You'll pay for this. Just you wait. And it's telling that no one seems that surprised. Um, I noticed they're outside. They're late because Meg has been fussing with her hair and Meg still will not run because that's not ladylike. (laughs) Also, again, that Joe takes the starch out of her again in front of strangers, in front of the men, by referring to the burnt hair again. It is definitely a thing that she likes to, you know, Meg's trying to be ladylike going to the theater. And Joe's like, ha ha, she won't let me touch her hair because I burn it off her face. Ha ha. (laughs) It's very funny. And Joe finally slips on the ice. She didn't (laughs) slip when she's walking across town with that tray, but she slips running out to the carriage. Now, Shouldn't Lori have come to the door? Lori should have come to the door. And I don't understand why Lori's not inside unless he's so tall and their skirts are so big that there's no room. Maybe that's it. Yeah, I wasn't sure either because he's sitting up with the driver. Here's what I think happened. I think he went to the door and they made him wait so long that he went right back out because his boots were dirty. I think that's just what would happen. (laughs) I love that we're talking about this. I don't know. Did he come to the door? He is proper. He would have come to the door. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Well, very good. This, with the threat of retribution in the air and the excitement of the theater still ahead of us, is a good time to take a little break. And when we come back, we will see how all this pans out. Beth faces her fears and goes next door. Or does she? (laughs) Poor anxious Beth. I just feel for her. She's sitting in the house. She's got her coat on. She has her sheet music in her hand. She builds up her courage. She walks with determination to the Lawrence house and stops and stares at it. The camera goes back and she looks so tiny in front of this big house with these huge pillars in front of it. I can feel why she feels anxious and nervous to go in. And Marmy watches the whole thing from the window. I think it's good that she doesn't interfere. She's probably holding her breath. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, again, that she's trying anything she can. Just let her do it on her own time. That's a good strategy. And apropos of nothing, by the way, other than the <laughs> fact that I first noticed it really in this set of scenes, the embroidery in this house is on point. I mean, I think in the book it was Beth who was so good at embroidery in the first place, but like Beth's bonnet ties, Joe's hat, Joe's cape, mm-hmm. uh, Amy's slippers, everything's got expert level embroidery on it. Mm-hmm. Joe's cape is quite a masterpiece. I mean, in one regard, it's kind of ugly, but in another, it's green with these big trim and embroidery down the front. And she has this weird cottage hat that she wears. I did like this about the costuming department. A lot of period dramas will give a wardrobe to their characters. Mm. And this these characters wouldn't have a wardrobe. So they are always wearing the same hat and the same cloak. 
no matter where they go. And I really appreciated that. That is good. Well, okay. So Beth comes back and look at Marmiel acting casual like she wasn't just at the window, but she's disappointed because Beth has come back without going in. My feet just chattered on the ground, she said. I sort of don't like how irritated she allows herself to seem. Like, all right, then keep on your cloak and your hat. You can go with me to the Hummels. Like, God dang it. I don't like that, that she's really open about her disapproval. It doesn't make Beth feel any better. No, it doesn't. Although she's had years of this with Beth and she's probably, she doesn't know what to do and she can't go and, you know, make a psychologist appointment like I can and get a diagnosis and get strategy and stuff. She has to make it up on her own. Again, I say don't deal with it at all. Walk away. If she likes to be in the house, let her stay in the freaking house. That is the end. Why are you forcing her to become part, especially a woman in this time? There is no reason she has to be a part of the world if she's happy inside the house. Okay, I'm going to liken it to this. Do you remember when you were younger and your first friends got married and they started saying, when are you getting married? It's so wonderful. It's such a great experience. And so they wanted for you what they were happy with in their own lives. And I think that's what Marmy wants for Beth is things that make Marmy happy. So she assumes that they'll make Beth happy. I'm not saying it's right. I think it's very realistic is what I'm saying. It it irritates the heck out of you. And I'm like going, yeah, okay. Realism. I love it. I I see. I guess what you're saying, but there's things about this adaptation that are rubbing me the wrong way that I really need to get to grips with, I think. So we have two intercut um, series of scenarios here. We've got at the theater with Joe and Meg and Mr. Brooke and Lori Lawrence intercut with all I can say is Amy being a very bad person. So we start at the theater. We're promised, says Mr. Brooke, a chorus of comical crimson imps, among other delights. So hooray, he's already got conversation and he's humorous and he's a pretty handsome and cute guy. Lori, though, is not at all casual getting Joe to change seats. Wing man. He just says to Joe, who's sitting next to Mr. Brooke, why don't you switch seats with Meg? Because there's a very tall man in front of her. So now there's a very tall man in front of Joe. Okay. Joe's taller. Is there a look of thanks from Mr. Brooke, by the way? I I think there is. Oh, I don't know. I played it over a couple times and I just kept looking at the girl's faces like, oh my gosh, is he kidding? Okay, we'll play along. (laughs) Well, look at the far right, because I think behind Meg's, you know, bustling into her new seat self is a little look of like, smooth. (laughs) Nice. <laughs> Not smooth, but still. Thank you, Dan. Thanks a lot. Uh, it was good. That worked. So now I'm sorry. When we go back to Amy, this is unforgivable. This version, what Amy does for real, she burns 150 some pages by twos and threes in the kitchen stove. That is deliberate. And that is so out of proportion to what happened. And I'm I'm not sure why this Amy bothers me so much more than Kirsten Dunst's Amy. You know what? You know, actually, I do. Kirsten Dunst's Amy is younger, for one thing, and she, her crime is a crime of passion. She, like, flings Joe's whole book in the fireplace in the heat of the moment, you know, right when she was angry and Mm -hmm. can't get it back, even if she wanted to. You know, she couldn't stop herself because it was already gone. By the time she was remorseful, the fire had eaten it. I mean, this Amy didn't even do it in passion. She was downstairs drawing when Beth and her mother were having that whole conversation. She's letting it sit, and she is doing this horrible act in the coldness of just wanting to be mean and hurt Joe. She wants it to hurt a lot. She's looking forward to the big reveal. This Amy has a problem. 
<laughs> I agree. It's totally premeditated. Marmy had asked her if she wanted to go with them to the Hummels. And Amy said, not even a good lie. I'm just going to organize my art box. When in reality, organizing my art box in quotes means I'm going to go ruin my sister's life. Ha <laughs> ha. She seems not to have a conscience at all. And mm -hmm. if you think back to the 1994 movie, Kirsten Dunst does seem genuinely remorseful. Mm -hmm. but this just seems like rubbing your hands together and twirling your mustachio like a villain in vaudeville. It's not even, it's not even comfortable to live in the same house with that, <laughs> I don't think. No. And in the book, the theater goers kind of felt bad because they knew that Amy would enjoy this play. You know, they had a little bit of feelings of guilt, whereas these theater goers are just laughing their butts off. They think it's the greatest thing ever and they're so happy to be there. You know, the emotions in this whole thing are just a little weird for me. I well, think. now I have to disagree with you on that because, okay, so the theater goers do come home and we didn't see it during the theater necessarily, right. but both older sisters had been thinking of Amy. Joe spent some of her own money to buy chocolate caramels for Amy, which seems like her favorite thing. She mm -hmm. gave them to her specifically. She immediately apologized and said, here's these. I'm sorry I was a cross patch, which I am bringing back that word. I know. I, I had that. to look it up. I'm like, is it real? Yes. It's a bad oh, yeah. person. Yeah. It's totally a real word. Cross patch. So, you know, she knew that she hadn't been very transcendentalist earlier. And so I think that's a proportional response. Like, man, I sucked. Here's some candy. Are we good? And to add to that, Meg thought of her too, because Meg took the time to stop at the ticket office. Are there tickets still available for next week? I would like to bring my little sister. She felt bad about not being able to include Amy in the party, started to think like, what can I do? What what can I do to make up for my part in making her unhappy? And she also smoothed it over. I asked, we've got tickets, we can go next week. So both sisters, I think they both felt bad. Even though we didn't see, see it, we saw the result of it. Yes. So here's Amy though, literally hanging on to this outsized grudge even knowing what she did. When they give her the chocolate-covered caramels, Marmy even suggests that she share them because it's a treat that's best when shared. And that Amy, man, she is something else. She simply comes back with the very direct, I imagine all treats taste better when they're shared. Ooh-wee, it's truly frightening. Mm-mm-mm-mm-mm. So Hannah's the one who discovers the burnt up book. And uh, <laughs> I love how she puts this. This is another phrase that I'm going to use. I leave for one hour in the pursuit of additional onions. <laughs> I put the same thing down. I was like, that's funny. And I find my stove choked with a lot of scrawly papers. Amy has closed her eyes to savor the moment. Regard her. Poor Joe. Poor Joe. Oh, she looks so pleased with herself when Joe takes those papers from Hannah and looks at them and realizes what she's looking at and realizes what happens. And Amy just stands up and walks across the room and says, I told you I would make you pay for being so hateful. And I have. She has such a swagger. Oh, my God. And Joe made a big mistake by not just punching her in her freaking face. All this wrestling. No, no, that is not going to do it for me. That slap, though. Yes, sister. And I froze on all four ladies, Marmy, Beth, um, Meg, and Hannah, all had their mouths open. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was so realistic. That was more realistic than in the book. Like when I read it in the book the first time, I was like, they should be madder. There should be screaming and yelling. 
and, you know, more than there was. What Amy did was really bad. And the way that they portrayed it in this series, it's even worse. Yeah. And so, you know, of course, Joe leaves the room having vented her passion. See, that's a crime of passion. Yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Hermione punches Draco. Joe punches Amy or slaps her. So Amy's only concern is that Joe hit her. She is amazed that no one is rushing to her defense with, you know, the application of ice cream and sympathy. Even Amy's biggest fangirl, Meg, has abandoned her. And I don't blame Meg for abandoning her. That is an unforgivable scenario and a very selfish response. Marmy in the hallway is like, WTF do I do now? I love across the wall, you'll see the Marmy reflection. Like, I don't know, girl. I mean, there's no one to ask at all. Marmy mm-hmm. is at sea with this. What does she do with this scenario? Oh, my goodness. So Beth upstairs is, she's trying to be helpful. Can you just rewrite it? No, no, you can't. And Joe explains it to her that it doesn't work like that. The words come to her and they pass through her and her job is to catch them. She can't recreate them because they're gone. They were on the paper. It's where she put them. They're not in her head anymore. The end. I completely relate to that. I feel so for Joe. I I once threw away notebooks and notebooks of writing that I would give anything to get back. Um, But it was just too late by the time I wanted them back. And I cried and I cried about it. And it was only my own fault. So if I had someone else to blame, I would probably never forgive them. And um, Joe can't get it back any more than I could get mine back out of the landfill. Mm-mm. Although we take another moment here for Joe to say that she wants to be a boy again, because Beth is like, there, you should be crying. And Joe says tears are an unmanly weakness. I mean, we keep repeating this. Joe wants to be a boy thing over and over. I mean, should we just address that? I mean, just, what is that? Joe wanting not to be who she is, not feeling comfortable in her own body and having to be stuck in it. Well, it could, of course, be any number of things. But if we hearken back to the life of Louisa May Alcott, she felt powerless, powerless to alter her situation, the situation of her mother, or in fact, her sisters. She joined the ranks of women all over the world who could not control their own destiny. The female sphere is not... um, replete with options um, and Joe basically has lost as far as she's concerned her one option I just wanted to see if someone would publish it I mean think about it it was nearly done she was on the verge of just finding out if this is a key to the castle in the air just like she was telling Lori before and now it's gone her option is gone that's even more terrible then losing your words is losing a path that you thought you were almost ready to take. It's very sad for Joe. I know I'm sad. I'm so sad for Joe. So Marmy makes Amy apologize, but she is not forgiven. And you can see in her face that Amy doesn't feel that she's the one that has to apologize. Are you getting that? Mm, oh, completely. Marmy marches Amy up to the attic and says, apologize. And Amy just says, I'm truly sorry. Please forgive me. And Joe can't. And Amy, once again, is the victim. Do you hear that? I apologize and she won't accept it. Sorry, Amy, that is not an apology. Those are words. There is emotion behind apology and it's missing in your words. Yeah, in Amy's mind, here is what I see happening. The opera thing was number one. 
The book was number two. That's payback. We're even. Canceled out. So the slap, number three, unfair. Right. You know, that's literally her thought process. Um, she's mad when Joe won't accept her apology because she feels like she's being the bigger person because she has two wrongs and Joe only has one wrong. Yeah. So Mari tries to smooth it over and says, Joe, don't let this sun go down on your anger. Again, I think that's bad advice. Amy has to earn that trust back, don't you think? I completely think. And I don't have sisters, so I don't know what the relationship is like. But... She uses that. She says, you're sisters. You know, you need to forgive each other. No, you don't. No, you don't. <laughs> I'm so mad. <laughs> so Joe and Lori are talking about, quote, the perfect March family. He says, I can't imagine any of you quarreling. You're all part of a perfect picture. <laughs> well, he has this illusion that he's created stalking them through his window, you know, seeing them in their house and not hearing what they're saying. And he has no siblings. He's very alone in that house. He's the only kid there and he's ignored. And, you know, he's created this whole family that doesn't exist. So he's kind of sh shocked, really. Joe is like, no, families are messy. I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but that's the whole message behind this whole thing. It's like, no, Lori, it is not like that. That is not the real world. So they agree that to make make the day go well and cheer themselves up that they were going to go skating. And Lori has a little funny bit where he had promised to take Amy with them the next time they went skating. Ugh. But that was before she burnt your book. Like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Well, he's Joe's friend, ultimately, and not Amy's friend. When it comes right down to it, he's going to do what Joe wants to do, which is leave Amy at home and go down by themselves and they play hockey, which did they play hockey in the 1994 version? I can't remember. I thought they just skated. So evidently the ice on the lake is relatively dodgy. Joe has mentioned earlier that this is the last ice we'll have this year. So spring is approaching, the weather's warming up, and some of the ice might be rotten and too weak to walk upon. So Lori does a little sounding with his hockey stick and bashes around and kind of tells Joe the part of the lake to avoid because the ice is getting a little thin. We get one more attempt from Beth to go next door. She once again has her cloak on, her hat, all her music. She builds up her courage, and Marmy is watching again. She's watching to see where she goes. This time, Beth makes it only to the gate before she turns around and comes back inside. So Amy arrives at the pond, and there's an accident. Okay, once again, she shows up where she's not invited. Lori said I could go skating with him, but come help me put my skates on, Joe. Pretend I'm not here, but you need to help do this for me, is what she's saying. Really? Okay, this whole thing. And Joe says, if you're old enough to go where you're not wanted, you're old enough to fasten your skates. And so Amy starts ranting, blah, blah, blah. I don't even know what it is. Blah, 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 blah. And then she falls in mid-rant, which is like, and that is the wheel of karma. <laughs> at last. Um, this really is, though, no joke, an emergency. People can die after not very long in frigid water. 15 minutes, you're going to be unconscious. 45 minutes, you're going to be dead. Many years later, many of the victims of the Titanic did not die of drowning. They died of freezing to death in this cold of water. So it is dangerous. Also, you can be swept under if there's a current where no one can save you. Or more likely, and what they seem to be playing at here, is that she could just be pulled under by the sheer weight of all of her wet layers of clothes. That's what I always thought. 
all those other things are possible, but clothes are really heavy when they get wet. And she's wearing a lot of wool clothes, like just her cloak alone. That's enough to pull somebody under. So Joe's in shock. She is feeling guilty that she didn't tell Amy about the ice. Lori's taking charge. He's, you know, he sends Joe out to get a branch because the hockey stick isn't doing the trick. He knows that they need to get down low and distribute their weight across the ice. He's doing all the right things. And Joe runs off to go find a stick and she rips her hands up in the process. And I love, absolutely love the overhead shot that we get of the hole and the people. Yes. Yeah. Amy is saved. So they're back home and Marmy is bandaging Joe's bloody hand. And they start to talk about Joe's temper and Marmy's temper. And they did lose me here because I still don't think Joe should forgive Amy. It seems a little too easy. But I do like the conversation about the anger management. And I like the fact that Marmy says that she has been trying to cure her own rage for 40 years and have only succeeded in controlling it. Here's a little bit of realism for you. Watch for this. When Joe says, father's never angry, book Marmy, of course, goes into how much father helped her manage her anger, my hero, etc. Very paternal father figure. Movie Marmy has something else on her mind and just says, no one is without their trials. <laughs> Referring, I think, to what Aunt March said earlier, father's idealism is a great hardship on this family. That is directly from the life of Louisa May Alcott herself. But she says his strengths speak to my weaknesses and help to bear me up, which also sounds realistic because Abba knew that her husband was no good at supporting a family. But there must have been something about him she found attractive. Oh, very true. And just like Lori realized in those other scenes just a little bit ago that the March family wasn't the one he imagined, Joe right now is realizing that her mother isn't the person that she imagined either because she hadn't been looking at her like Lori does from up above and not hearing all the details. So all Marmy has been doing is just hiding her emotions. And getting back to Beth, she thinks perhaps that if she can overcome her anger like this, or at least conceal it, perhaps Beth can do the same thing with her bashfulness. Well, I can kind of see that. And I also think there's always a period of time or a moment in time when you realize that your parents are people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that you're more like them than you ever imagined. And that's this moment for Joe. In the book and in the series, Joe says, are you angry when you press your lips together and then go out of the room. That's Marmy's tell for when she's covering her anger. In the book, Joe goes on to say, when Aunt March scolds you. <laughs> but they didn't mention it here. That makes Marmy very upset. <laughs> well, Marmy sums it up by saying, sometimes we just have to do the bravest thing. And so Joe takes the initiative and goes upstairs and Joe and Amy... Makeup. Honestly, I have only a one-word synopsis. I have nothing else to say about Joe and Amy making it up. And I wrote, gross. <laughs> well, I was a little nicer because I said the best talks are done on pillows, aren't they? I just had a really sweet pillow talk with my son. I could tell he was upset, so I just go went and lay down on his bed until he talked. It was really sweet. So maybe that had just happened. So maybe that's why. I have to say, this show has made me hate this Amy. 1994 Amy, book Amy, you know, you can have your feelings or whatever, but this show, I have been directed to hate Amy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so the resolution is not 
as easy for me because they dug the hole too deep, I think. I agree. And, you know, book Amy and even former movie Amy, she's annoying. She's an annoying little sister. But in this one, she's the villain right from the get-go. And the fact that she looks so much like Nellie Olsen, I can't keep, I can't get that out of my head. So I think I'm taking all that, you know, Nellie Olsen anger and projecting it onto this Amy too, which makes her like a triple villain. If it makes you feel any better and as a bit of explanation for the young ones among you who might not know who Nellie Olsen is, (laughs) in the 70s, there was a series on TV called Little House on the Prairie. And in real life, Susan, Melissa Gilbert, who played Laura Ingalls Wilder, and her arch enemy, Nellie Olson, played by Allison Arngrim. In real life, those two girls were the best of friends. She, like the actor that plays Draco, was one of the nicest people on the set of Little House. Mm-hmm. It was just her character. That's yeah. so bad. It's called acting, darling. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, hilarious. Okay, so there is a lovely boating party at the lake. I would also like to attend this boating party even now, you know, exactly as is. Picnic campers, little awning, boat race, everyone laughing, running, except Meg. She does hurry a little, but still doesn't run. (laughs) She cracks me up. And it's obviously, according to the sign, the Walden Pond boathouse. The Alcotts were in thick with Emerson, who owned the land around Walden Pond, and Thoreau, who wrote about (laughs) Walden Pond, (laughs) and um, all the other transcendentalists. And so it's a nice nod to that. It's also a real local pond. So I thought that was really good to just put that little sign in there for a little emphasis. Yes. Now, you want to go to this boating party. Do you want to be wearing those clothes? Yeah. Really? Why not? I'm not, I wear sweaters till it gets to 90 degrees. That's I don't true. care. Um, <laughs> you know, Joe's winter hat, it bugged me the whole time. It was just too authentic, I think. <laughs> but her summer hat was darling. They made it up to her from the costuming department with her summer hat, I think. Yeah, the winter hat looked kind of like a fez. Mm-hmm. Tied on with a ribbon. It, the closest I could, I found a guide of Civil War era hats and it was the closest I could see was a cottage cap. I keep thinking that was called a coal scuttle hat, but I could be wrong. I could be wrong too, because it wasn't really spot on. The ribbon was different. Or maybe a shaker bonnet. There was a giant shaker community just outside of Concord that we talked about during the Louisa May Alcott podcast. And I could see getting hold of the pattern or being inspired by it. Or, of course... It could be something they just made up out of the scrap bag, too. It could be, you know, Joe's not your fashionable Vogue magazine reader. Well, whatever the fashion, whatever the (laughs) realism, I (laughs) like the joy in everyone's mind in the boats. Everyone is young. It's sunny. It's a nice day. They have no responsibilities. Some of them normally do, but today they don't. Um, I just like that feeling. More days like that. So Beth bails out of the boats, that's not her thing at all, and decides to go back and sit under the canopy. And there's already somebody there. There's a man there. So I'm so proud of her for going all the way back. That is almost scarier than going up to an empty house, don't you think? I do, because it's just going to be you and him sitting on a blanket. And that's a very intimate kind of setting. Good job, Beth. You overcame it a little bit here, I think. 
Well, Fred thinks that Beth's been sent to keep him company, and he is so freaking cute. I love this kid. I don't know who this is. He he says the funniest thing. He says, I used to be able to talk about two things, hunting and cricket, but I broke my legs hunting, and I can't think you and I would get along very far with cricket. <laughs> but how wrong is he? Because he wants to talk about cricket, and Beth doesn't want to talk at all, but she would love to listen. They're perfect. This is a perfect match on the blanket on the beach. <laughs> when she says, if you'd like to try cricket, I will listen very hard. I want to squeeze her. <laughs> I, know. I love her. I love him. I wish, uh, you know, no spoilers, but I wish things had been different because, man, couldn't they have been a nice match? That's what I think. Maybe we should write some fan fiction. <laughs> Out on the lake, in one of the boats, Meg is with Mr. Brooke. And an English visitor who's about her age, and Amy's in the back, and Mr. Brooke inadvertently causes Meg a little bit of distress. You know, he was wooing her in the boat. He had mentioned doing a translation of a German poem and leaving it in Meg's box for her. And Miss Vaughn wanted to know why her German wasn't better, and perhaps she could, you know, get some learning from her governess. And that's when Meg said, but I am a governess. The lady English visitor suddenly realizes that she has been hanging out and boating with a servant who she had been misled into thinking was some kind of equal of hers. And she pees out in such a cold fashion. She says, Lori did not make your position entirely plain. And she just abandons Meg. Yeah, she just couldn't get out of that boat fast enough. I feel for Meg. I really do. She bought new gloves special for this event to make a good impression. She mentions that earlier. You know, she is pretty sad and I think she's pretty humiliated because it happened right in front of John Brooke. She's devastated, but propriety means that she can only say, I had hoped Miss Vaughn and I could be friends. But look at him's face. <laughs> Mr. Brooke is so full of admiration for Meg. It's truly the look of love, I think. Meg doesn't see it yet. And he mentions that he, once Lori goes to college, obviously he's his tutor, so he doesn't have a job anymore and he's going to go to be a soldier. And that kind of upsets Meg. And all she says is, we would all be heartbroken if you came to any harm, which is as far as she can go. And that's as far as she means to go, I think. She doesn't know that she likes him. No. So genius is burning in the attic. <laughs> it's a rainy day. What are you going to do on a rainy day in the summer? But Lori and Joe are back in the garret, except now Lori has a purpose. Before he did, he was had no purpose. He was a lazy dog. And now his mission is to train the pet rat. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it had a name. I think it's called like Scrabble or something in the book. Yeah, not in this. He's just playing with this rat that suddenly appeared. Well, I like how cozy it is up there, actually. I mean, I probably have an attic room. I've never been up there. I've Seriously? Literally... Yeah, I've never been. We have an attic. <laughs> well, all right. Uh, I've never been up there. It's probably just um, insulation and knob and tube wiring is what I would guess. But, you know, there could be trunks full of treasures up there and I would never know. Um, anyway, <laughs> it's almost like at this point that Laurie is acting like a brother. He couldn't lounge more thoroughly if he tried. Meg comes in to check if Joe has seen one of her brand new gloves, the gloves she literally just bought for the lake excursion. And before 
I think Meg would have been horrified to have someone hear some kind of domestic conversation. Gloves, that's an intimate apparel, you know. <laughs> she said gloves out loud. And now she sees Lori over there and just rolls her eyes like no one thinks there's anything improper going on upstairs. No one. Mm-mm. He's the fifth kid as far as everybody except Lori is concerned. <laughs> So, obviously, if Meg is willing to talk about underclothes in front of you, you're a brother. <laughs> that reminds me, I don't know what show we were talking about, where we were talking about Peck's bad boy and his pa, where all these young men came calling on all his older sisters. The little 10-year-old boy was explaining how, oh, you should have seen these people 30 minutes ago, staggering around with curl papers and like cream on their face. And <laughs> you don't even know. These aren't the same people that I live with. The ones that are coming down with feathers on their heads, you know, and he was like outing them. I thought that was very rude. Well, anyway. That's very Joe, actually. (laughs) So um, Lori's behind the scenes now. So Beth tries again. And in classic fashion, the third time is the charm. Beth makes it next door. Yay. We're all cheering her on. This time she opens the door to the Lawrence house and walks in without anybody there. She doesn't ring the bell or knock. She's just determined to get to that piano. And she does. And she walks to the piano that she sees and lifts the lid and starts playing. And then scary Mr. Lawrence off in the distance (laughs) screams again. Nobody is supposed to play that piano. He comes down there and scares the crap out of Beth. Now he heard her young lady voice and was still mad. So who does he think is down there? A housemaid or something? I don't know. He keeps coming with anger until he sees who it is. And then he he laughs. Her look of terror sort of makes him laugh. Not meanly, but like, oh, oh my goodness. No, I mean, no, I... I'm so sorry, like that. But I don't know who he thought was down there. I have no idea. Because nobody that lives there would dare to play that piano. Well, he apologizes and he lets us all in, as well as Beth, on a little secret. Why no one can play that piano. He says, I once had a daughter who loved this piano as much as I loved her. I thought that silence would be her best memorial. But now I suspect I might be mistaken. It was very touching. And he says, don't stop, please. And he sits to hear her play and tears sprang up in my freaking eyes. <laughs> it's so simple and so touching. Well, Dumbledore is the man, number one. It managed to evoke the whole memory of his daughter and he hardly even said anything. So, yes, I was down here sitting on my chair like, what? <laughs> I was sitting in a uh, car repair waiting room. Uh, so I, I, I tried not to cry too much. <laughs> Out in the garden, Lori outs Meg and Mr. Brooke as a possible item. I loved how the music that Beth was playing kind of comes over into this particular scene, too. It's in the background, so I don't know if they could hear it or if it was just for our enjoyment. But there's this beautiful thing happening out in the Lawrence house and then out in the garden, Joe is barefoot and they're playing with the chickens. Lori's getting kind of coy and he brings up the fact that Mr. Brooke and Meg are spending a lot of time in the hothouse looking for this orange tree that Brooke had grown from a seed. He's just kind of lays it out for Joe saying, you know, it's intentional. And I know who has her glove that was missing. And Joe is appalled. What? You knew this? He tells her that Brooke has Meg's glove. 
He's been carrying it around since the day of the voting. I love that. I love it. It's so sentimental. And I could have done, I will tell you, Madam Director, without that lengthy close-up on a big old barefoot. What was that about? To taunt me? Yes. (laughs) Not good. But I like the scene. And I like more than the Winona Ryder Joe. This Joe actually has an appropriately muted, sad reaction. She's not happy about it, but what are you going to do? <laughs> Meg is growing up and it's the realization. And I I think Lori thought they were going to have a laugh about it, you know, but no, she says, bad boy for muddling up my head about this, for bringing love into this. <sighs> so Amy and Marmy are walking along the road and Amy is asking Marmy for money for pickled limes. This is a huge plot point in the book, so I'm kind of glad that they brought it into the series. Amy apparently owes a lot of girls this social currency of pickled limes. It's the craze right then. In reality, it was a craze in New England at about the time. They were either imported limes from the West Indies or they were um, Moroccan versions, which was more of a dry rub version of pickled limes. (laughs) (laughs) They were basically the Sour Patch Kids candy of the day. They were so delightfully sour and it was kind of thrilling. You know, (laughs) it's a simpler time. They cost only a penny. Um, They were just a fad. I like how Marmy rolls when Amy says, it's the fashion. And Marmy immediately understands. I love that. Some of my son's fads, you know, Pokemon comes back over and over. Beyblades, friendship bracelets. I don't know what those rubber bracelets were called. The ones O-rings. Shaped, no, yep. the ones shaped like things. You know, they were shaped like horses or whatever. And oh, stretched yeah. Stretched them over your, yeah, and Bakugans, all that stuff. So fads come and go. Marmy actually just rolls her eyes at the whole like, oh, fashion. And she said it used to be pricking bits of India rubber to make balls. and I looked that up because I've been wondering about this my whole life. Evidently, you take a piece of natural rubber, which is really nothing more than sap from certain trees. You roll it into a ball, just like you're making a peanut butter cookie, you know, between your hands. And then you take a pin and you poke it all over and put it in a jar of vinegar. And the vinegar does something to the rubber, cured it, I guess. And the ball would bounce like the Dickens, like it was the original sky ball. I've literally wondered about this my whole life. And if you've never seen a sky ball or an India rubber pricked ball, what are the chances of that? (sighs) You can lose those on top of a three-story building. That is the bounce we're talking about. Ask me how I know. (laughs) It's called losing a series of $10 balls. That's what that's called. But I mean, it was no joke. So you can make your own very amazing toy. I never even bothered looking it up because in my head, it was those soft erasers that artists use that are kind of pliable. My mother had them and we would often pinch pieces off and just kind of roll them in our fingers. I just always up until this moment assumed that that's what it was. How about that? <laughs> well, and maybe you could make it out of erasers too. Maybe you didn't have to go to the source of the sap. I don't know. I don't know. But I spent some serious time looking up pickled lime recipes. I don't know that I'm down, although you could use one as a, see, this is where my mind is, a cocktail garnish, like on a Bloody Mary, maybe? Margarita. Yeah. They're Salt. So versatile. Limes. 
Yeah. So yes, we will post some of that. Um, okay, there we go. So some other ladies arrive. Mr. Brooke has given Meg that little orange tree. Is that not the cutest thing? It is, but it's got oranges on it already that look like kumquats. Yes. I mean, I'm trying to figure out, I don't know. I don't know what month this is. I don't know anything about orange trees. And I have a feeling that if you grow citrus in a greenhouse, the seasons are all off anyway. I agree. I don't know. For some reason, that didn't bother me. Botanically, I figure mm, there's like full-time gardeners in there. They probably forced it or I don't know. All right. I'll accept that. Just figuring rich people have another parallel set of rules. (laughs) (laughs) We had just been talking about the pickled limes, you know, with the salt. And so then I was thinking kumquats when I saw the tree because, you know, that's also something that's fun to eat and, you know, kind of sour and sweet at the same time. Okay. Well, Marmy seems to know already. There's a little hint of Marmy knowing when she's like, that is a very mm, expensive gift. Think about about this time, maybe even 20 years later, Laura Ingalls Wilder had two oranges in her whole life and that was a big deal. So now here's her daughter holding a whole plant full of oranges. I don't know. Well, Beth also got some flowers, pansies, which I didn't know were called heartsies until I heard this. Um, and they sure smell good. So she's happy. Everybody's happy. And then the telegram arrives. Is it in slow motion or just a weird angle? I wasn't sure either. I'm not sure. I think it's just a weird angle, but it's like this bright sunny day and all of a sudden it's dark because this man on a horse is riding down the street very slowly and everyone's breath just stops because they realize that it's a telegram. And I don't think telegrams have the reputation uh, evidently of being good news in the times of war. So this can't be good. Marmy actually takes it and runs away to read it in private. She excludes her children from the reading of the telegram. We see everyone outside of the room ranged on the stairs, waiting. Mm -hmm. And they're just sitting there. You can just see that they're all sad and scared. We don't even know what's in the telegram yet because we just see Marmy reading it. And this beautifully lit from behind this window behind her. It was a beautiful scene. Sad. But beautiful. And she comes out of the room. She has to open the door to greet the kids and says, your father is very ill and I've been asked to go to him at once. So at least he's not dead yet. True, true. Listeners of the History Chicks will note that Louisa May Alcott served as a Civil War nurse, um, became ill, and her own father was asked in an emergency to travel to Washington Uh, where she very well might have been in extremis. So that is where she got the inspiration for this scene. Um, Lori is sent to deliver a note to Aunt March. Obviously, it's asking for money, though he doesn't know that. And in fact, we don't know that either, really. But you can guess. Lori doesn't actually take off right away because he stays around. I mean, he's the fifth kid, right? He wants to know what's going on and assess the situation. He wants to know what he can do to help. This is the same guy that got the Christmas treats over after Mm -hmm. they went and helped the Hummel family. So he wants to help out. He just doesn't know what to do. So he's kind of watching before he leaves with this note. Marmy, understandably, is beside herself. She is not handling the immediate shock well at all. He sees how rattled she is, and that's unusual. Um, She really, she can't even get her thoughts together, really. She's checking over her medicine case. Now, in the book, At this point, I think she just refers to taking old wine. I tried to see if there was, I think later there is talk of her medicine case, but so we hear about it now in the movie, sal volatile, which is smelling salts, Um, nux vomica, which is strychnine, 
if we're keeping with the old poison as medicine, um, I think it was used as a stimulant, more belladonna, and Holloway's pills. Holloway's pills are like the most patent of patent medicine. It was supposed to cure everything from baldness to cancer to liver disease to women's complaints to children's teething problems. I mean, it was probably just opium and alcohol. Well, they did some tests on it. It was aloe, myrrh, and saffron. Oh, so it's more helpful or... Helpful. Yeah, it's not going to hurt anybody, unlike, you know, Belladonna. You know, it's not going to hurt them, but it's not going to help them, really. So it's a psychosomatic pill is really what it is. It's a sugar pill. Man, I think Mr. Holloway printed money, though, because that was, I think, one of the most popular patent medicines of all time. Well, and then Joe's dithering a little, like, where do I go? And Marmy loses her temper. From the pharmacy on Main Street! <laughs> where the frick do you think? You know, <laughs> so funny. Uh, I'm, la- I'm laughing at you laughing at Marmy breaking down. <laughs> I am just like, Lord, well, this fictional character is really losing her crap in a way I did not expect. Well, Meg is in charge of linen and laundry. And then Beth and Amy are just in charge of praying, praying more specifically that I may be able to afford the train ticket and that I'm not too late. And then she asks her children to help her and breaks down. Now, see, this is not a funny breakdown. I totally get this. She says, help me, children. Help me to bear it. And they are all hugging. And Lori sees them all hugging. And I believe that's when he departs Mm -hmm. on his errand. Yeah. I mean, that's just such a poignant family moment. And even though he's treated like the fifth kid, I think he realizes he's not. Mm -hmm. You know, he is an outsider. He's outside the room physically. And, you know, the family is all together. It's very sad. So Joe does go on an errand to town. This scene is intercut with Aunt March arriving at Orchard House to offer her help. So we'll cover the first part, you know, not to just keep going back and forth. Joe going to town on her errand. Um, She's left the pharmacy on Main Street. And and she's rounding the corner and sees a wig store and gets an idea. She goes in and she wants to sell her hair. And the book describes him as a man who spends time in front of the mirror oiling his hair back. (laughs) He was kind of dapper. He was. And so he starts in, bonjour, mademoiselle. And she just cuts through the crap. Do you only speak French? Because I don't have a lot of time. That's right. And the wig maker, you know, he's like, your hair is a sadly unfashionable color. I can't give you that much money for it. My father's in the war and my mother needs to go see him. He could be dying. Don't you have anybody in the war? And he just makes a face and he's like, yes, my son. I need $25, says Joe firmly. $25, which in modern money is almost $500 for her hair. He has a look of concession on his face. Let's go over to the other half of this scene. Um, I love how Aunt March comes in. <laughs> she comes into Orchard House, which I think is just not something that she doesn't ever just drop in. So she catches Marmy in the kitchen needing bread and says, if you are going to send me a written appeal for aid, the least you could do is await me in the parlor without an apron on. I guess when you reach Aunt March's age, you can speak whatever comes to your mind. Oh, my gosh. Well, at least Marmy stands up for herself. I did not expect you to come personally. Marmy asks, do you, would you like a chair? She looks around at the chairs who are probably covered in flour and she says, no, thank you. And she sticks out her neck. And right then I was like, oh, my. Aunt March looks 
just like a turtle. <laughs> I don't know what else to say. It is like specifically a turtle. Maybe you can screenshot it. I couldn't on my phone. Oh. Okay. I totally missed the turtle. It is. Mm, yeah. <laughs> well, so Marmy has a little bit of a poignant thing. You know, my, my husband might still die, but at least he won't die alone. And the aunt wants some more details. What is it? Dysentery? Typhus? The telegram didn't say. And then we see a touch of humor that I swear to you Aunt March has never had in any adaptation as far as I'm concerned. Angela Lansbury says, obviously that note was written by a man. I thought that was very cute. I agree. I agree. She suddenly becomes like somebody I'd like to talk with. You know, before I would have been scared of her. She's like, obviously it was written by a man. We must send a woman to get the facts. She is so crusty and so funny. You know, in the book, all she says is... My nephew is absurd to go in the army. I told you no good would come of it. And maybe you'll listen to me next time. And she didn't come personally. She sent a note. And in the book, Marmy put the note immediately into the fire and put the money in her pocket and moved on. So there was none of this really cute little scene. So anyway, I like crusty, funny Aunt March. Maybe we can like stitch together the best parts of every adaptation and just get a really epic uh, product. (laughs) So anyway, so Joe arrives back home with a surprise for the family. And I will say she looks kind of dazed. And I've never had all my mermaid hair cut off. I imagine a big weight's gone. I imagine she feels like she has a balloon head. (laughs) (laughs) That's probably exactly what she imagines. Yes. (laughs) And um, so she gets in the house, you know, her whatever it is, is concealed by a hat. Mr. Lawrence, evidently, is, out of the goodness of his heart, sending Mr. Brooke as an escort. Think what a relief that was. Lori took a little time to run over there and tell his grandpa all about it. And so Mr. Lawrence, although a scary, scary, you know, curmudgeon, evidently, is a very, very nice man and a good neighbor. And um, evidently, in reality, was friends with Marmy's parents. He has known her a long time. So I'm guessing that Orchard House might even be her family house. Anyway, Aunt March is lending money for the fair, says Marmy. Um, <laughs> okay, so you've got Rich guy sending you an escort and supplies. You've got money from Aunt March. And it's like, wah, 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 because I got you this. And then she takes off her bonnet. <laughs> and Beth has the worst face of all time on her head. <laughs> it's the worst haircut in the history of haircuts. He probably used the kitchen shears to get it done. Because there's like scraggly ends. He didn't even try to tidy it up. He just thwacked off all of her hair like right to the nape of her neck it's gone (laughs) i imagine he did that thing where you put it in a ponytail and then you cut it and it's short in the middle and long on the sides that's what i that's what it looked like to me yeah probably and he didn't trim it up (laughs) she put her hat on and she got home she was in a hurry maybe that was her call i don't know (laughs) well he is not a barber he's an artist He puts the hair together. Taking it off isn't his thing. That is somebody else's job. That's right. And of course, Amy has to repeat the your one beauty because she's not reformed yet. But you can tell that Marmy's very proud and that Joe knows it. And that's really all that's important to Joe. Wouldn't Joe love to have short hair because she keeps talking about wanting to be a boy and having all the benefits of boydom and short hair is one of them. 
and she does, but I can imagine it's a bit of a shock. I mean, you've had that hair your whole oh, life. Oh, yeah. And it was not a premeditated scenario. She just like went in and had it done. And it's more like, and you can't take it back. And, you know, later she loves it. Later she says, um, the barber seems to think my hair is going to come in as a curly crop, which is just perfect. Because, you know, when all the weight is taken off of her hair... Mm-hmm. It's going to bounce up. And then she says, that is going to suit me just fine. Mm-hmm. So ultimately, I think her hair does please her very much. And she does let it get back to her shoulders um, in episode two. That's not too much of a spoiler, I hope. <laughs> but, um, you know, so she's not going to have short hair, like modern pixie cut short hair. But for the time, she does have significantly shorter hair. And I can imagine it's just more practical for her. So I wouldn't feel too bad about Joe and her hair. Mr. Brooke has come to get Marmy to take her to the train station. And if you'll catch that in the background, Meg and Mr. Brooke share a little look. And Marmy says goodbye to her little women. She says, I want you all to remember this one thing. No matter what happens in Washington, you will never be fatherless under heaven. This whole this whole adaptation has taken out most of the New England old timey that's O L D E T H Y M E um religion out of it um it's not as culturally available as it used to be uh, so we wouldn't understand a lot of the references like pilgrim's progress etc that they make in the original and then maybe they were just trying to simplify it for the audience um or make it make it more relevant for today or whatever but this is really the one of maybe only two direct references to religion that they left at least in this first part can you think of any more no. i mean i guess the demons of yeah Pigland or whatever is kind of a reference but sort of but i didn't even catch that one so i'm not gonna count it <laughs> no there really wasn't a lot there wasn't a lot and the books you know at christmas they didn't show that they were the bible so yeah and they didn't right. refer to them as being pilgrim's progress either and they Mm-mm. didn't refer to reading them every morning before breakfast they really really cut out a lot of that so anyway um so there's that and then um she's gone she's out and they sort of want to run after her their first instinct is to run out in the middle of the road and way for goodbye and first meg and then joe are like you know she would really prefer us to be brave that will make her feel happier that we can take care of ourselves and then of course joe brings in her perspective if we were boys we wouldn't be quaking and quivering like this and so her point is we have to be practical and to that effect the whole entire show bookends with yet another scene, just like the very opening shot we got of Joe chopping wood. Thus, this episode ends with Joe chopping wood. And that is the end of episode one. That's it. So things I was missing. Here's some things I was missing. Okay. <laughs> A normal Amy. <laughs> <laughs> An Amy you didn't hate. Um, I also missed the Rodrigo theatricals so desperately because honestly, that whole like artistic creative side, I just, I guess they, they hinted it that everyone had their own little thing going with possible exception of Meg didn't really have, although she did in the book, she was one of the stars and she was the best singer. I don't know. I don't know why they left that out. I really was looking forward to that. One of my favorite scenes from the book when I was a little kid is when the tower fell down (laughs) and Amy... (laughs) On stage, and and they dragged Amy out from under the broken castle and said, the show must go on. Keep going, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that was a big part of the book. There was a lot of theatricals and a lot of creativity up in the garret. The only creativity they showed was Joe writing. Well, no, no. I mean, Amy's drawing. Beth's playing the piano. I mean, in the garret. They spent a lot of time in the garret, even in other adaptations. Yeah. It was like their playroom. 
Oh, you are absolutely right. We are not going to get any of the Pickwick papers or the meetings. Okay, now I'm sad about that too. That's a bummer. And I also missed more Joe Laurie bonding. And I don't know what more I would have wanted, but maybe a little more joking around or something. I don't know. I wanted to see a little bit more of the the brotherhood. <laughs> I agree. I would have liked to have seen less of the one-sided crushing on Joe, you know, because it was yeah. pretty heavy handed, I thought, in this. And it kind of happened too soon. Mm -hmm. or, yeah. Well, um, better, though, we have a much better, I mean, I like Winona Ryder, don't get me wrong, but I never thought she was Joe, never ever. Uh, this is much better Joe, but she's still too cute. This is in no way a performance criticism, because I think this Joe is nearly perfect in her actions. I, uh, Maya Hawk is tall, she's five foot eight and a half. Okay, fine, but can we never, never, ever get a book-looking Joe? We can't have everything, I guess. But, like, my goodness. Who would you put? Well, I don't know. Book Joe is tall, and she's awkward, and she has giant hands and feet, mm -hmm. and she's plain, i.e., we say over and over again, her hair's her one beauty. Amy, even in this adaptation, says it two times, but it is blatantly not true. She and Beth could be twins, which is good casting. She's not Book Joe. Book Joe is supposed to not be asked to dance at the party because she's plain and awkward and I don't know. Okay. No, I see. Like an olive oil. Yes. Can we not get an olive oil? <laughs> well, who played her in the Popeye movie? Shelley Duvall. Oh, there you go. Who's a also little old for Joe. Yeah, a little. <laughs> Maybe she has like a granddaughter or something. Well, Meg is more like I pictured her in the 1994 adaptation. Again, Trini Alvarado did just fine. So I have no problem with either Meg. The Beth is nearly perfect. I, yeah, I might cry about the thing later. We'll see. <laughs> yeah, Beth is really good. I The girl that plays Meg, her name is Willa Fitzgerald. Isn't that pretty? Mm -hmm. she's, she's American and she is 27. I mean, at least Maya Hawk is 19. I mean, she's the closest one to her you know, character's age. I think Amy's older than Joe, the actress. Amy is 21. Yeah. <laughs> Catherine Newton is 21. She was in Lady Bird and she was in Little Big Lies and a couple episodes of Supernatural. I mean, she's a pretty popular actress. But not 12 years old. Not 12 years old. And I don't think she looked 12 years old at all. I don't think that any of this is her. I mean... I guess some of it's acting choice, but then the director's the final gatekeeper as to the mood of how Amy's going to come out. And I just think that was like a, a really like disturbing choice to have Amy be that mm, without conscience, without mm -hmm. self-knowledge. Also so premeditated scary. Mm -hmm. You, you kind of want to lock on your bedroom door yeah. on the inside to keep you in. <laughs> you don't want to be sharing a bed with her. That's for sure. <laughs> well, all right. Well, there's a lot to process. Hooray. I um, There's a lot good about it, though. I mean, don't get me wrong. I really liked it. I'm glad I saw it. Yeah. I'm looking forward to episode two. Yeah, me too. I, I mean, it's beautiful. You know, we're really big on production value and stylistically, it's a beautiful, beautiful show. Snow aside. <laughs> Alrighty, you got any links? Um, okay, so I have, uh, and I think we both probably have 
uh, recipes for pickled limes. Mm-hmm. Also, I have a video of the gallop dance. It looks fun, although watch your ankles in those high-heeled shoes if you attempt it. I have also all you need to know about Holloway's pills. And then if there are some words you didn't catch several times during this episode and we saw it before there were subtitles, there might well be subtitles on PBS, in which case you don't need this, but we will give you a link to the full transcript in case you need to follow up with some things that people said. Excellent. Now, following this show, there will be an Orchard House documentary that was put together by the people at Orchard House. I've seen the extended trailer for it, and it looks beautiful. It was a Kickstart-funded documentary. It's not shown at the same time across the country, so you need to find it on your local PBS station. But I think you should, based on what I'd seen. I'm going to put the... Joey and Rachel book club. I don't know what else to call it. There was an episode of Friends where they were spoiling books for each other. And the one that was spoiled for Joey was Little Women. It was, it's a very funny scene. <laughs> He's so <laughs> innocent and cute. By and the it, way. I know. And I don't want to say what it is because it'll spoil what's going to happen. If somebody doesn't know this story, I don't know. So I'll put the, the Friends episode on, on the show notes for this. Let's see. There will be a modern retelling of Little Women, a theatrical release, which is coming out in September of 2018. So September of this year, those can either flop or not. So we'll have to, the jury's out on that one. Becca, have you ever taken a Which March Sister Are You quiz? Uh, I have not. <laughs> there is one on the PBS website for this series and I'll link you up to that but I took it I was kind of surprised because everybody wants to be Joe right I actually think I'm Meg yeah I never thought I was a Joe except for the writing thing other than that I really wasn't her but I came out as an Amy (laughs) (laughs) okay uh, wait wait let, let me give you the definition though Some may call you spoiled, but others understand you have a talent for getting your way. Call it water under the bridge, but you've grown into a much kinder and refined version of that flighty pretty girl who wanted everything except perhaps her nose. Okay. I wonder. I wonder what I'm going to come up as. So I was an Amy. I don't know how I feel about that. Well, I'll have to take it and I'll update you on episode two. Um, Also, please do not miss the Louisa May Alcott biography show that we do on our other podcast, The History Chicks. We covered her life very extensively and it is so illuminating once you know Louisa May Alcott's story to come back and reread or re-listen to or in this case re-watch Little Women because you're going to be shocked at the parallels especially with this one I think. Mm-hmm. Similar to the way they did Mansfield Park that was half book Mansfield Park and half Jane Austen life story uh, which was very controversial as I recall at the time. I think that's what this retelling is doing is putting in so much of the author's hints to her life in mm-hmm. here. I liked it. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thanks for joining us for episode one. Happy Mother's Day. If you are in the United States of America, I hope you are getting what you want, be it brunch or new shoes or in my case, all the bicycles out of the living room. <laughs> I get grocery store fried chicken with my mother-in-law. That's my husband's idea of making us brunch. It's edible, though. Yeah. Every it- year. Same thing. 
<laughs> it's tradition. Mm, okay. So chime in on our Little Women thread with your favorite Mother's Day gifts or your <laughs> unfavorite Mother's Day gifts. I would be very interested to see them. And thank you so much for listening. We'll see you for the next episode. Bye. Bye.